That's so funny. Oh my god, it's funny and cringe. Hello and welcome to the Open Hardware Manufacturing Podcast, the podcast about making open source hardware. My name is Stephen Hawes. And I'm Lucian Chapler. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about sourcing. So actually getting all the stuff in-house to build the thing that you sell. And in this one, we get into a ton of the little aspects. This is going to be a real broad overview of like generally how does sourcing work when you're a mid-scale manufacturing, mid-scale company. Uh, you're not buying, you know, millions of things from a vendor. We'll touch on finding samples, getting in samples, where to find production partners, where to find vendors, how to buy things, go about purchasing, yeah. contracts, how to get the shipments in, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, yeah. A lot about duties, a, lot of, a little bit about buying a lot of toilet paper, uh, <laughs> and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Just everything that generally is necessary going into how do you find vendors, get stuff in, quality check it, everything that goes into, into sourcing them. And some of it will be just an overview because a whole episode could be made about these smaller topics. Right, yeah. It's just our best to go across the range of what to consider here. Exactly. So if any of y'all hear a specific point that we touch on briefly, because this is just an overview, let us know in the own podcast channel in the Lumen PMP Discord server. There's a link in the show notes and we will make an episode about it. We'll talk about that specific thing if you want us to go into more detail about any of this stuff. All right, ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so sourcing, actually getting the stuff in we need to actually make the thing uh, that we're trying to ship out. The first part, like before actually getting the parts and like even trying to find them, there's a bunch of stuff that comes first. So samples is something that we we deal with. Consistently. Yeah. There's almost always a sample in the mail heading our way. Yeah, pretty much we always have like some kind of sample to validate, either like a second source of something or, you know, just, just something new we're trying to roll out. And so sometimes if like for R&D, I will buy parts on like Amazon or, you know, um, uh, like Robot Shop or Servo City or like places like that just to get something in hand to validate it. Um, but also sometimes we get them from a vendor too. For sure. Yeah. And uh, every vendor that we use in mass production probably started by sending us samples in a smaller quantity. And it's super important to do that. Yeah. Especially for the things that define the quality of the product you're manufacturing. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like something like a NEMA 17 stepper motor, there, th there's not a tremendous difference. There is some, but like a NEMA 17 is a NEMA 17. It's a set standard. And like you can get better quality ones, but we could get those from anywhere to test like bare bones functionality. But then if we have a weird thing, like something strange, we really kind of want to get the samples from that vendor to make sure when we're going through our engineering validation stuff, we're getting the version of it that is actually what we would theoretically ship, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there can be multi-steps to that process. Uh, it can be as simple as sending one before they send the next thousand. There can be receiving a sample, literally signing it with a Sharpie for approval, sending it back, yeah. and then hold that as a standard in QC. It, you name it. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You can be as thorough about this as you want. Sure. Or sometimes you just shoot from the hip, and if the sample looks good, you click buy from Amazon for 100 Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it also depends on what you're getting, too. Because, like, I think we recently bought, like, a bunch of thumb screws. It's really hard to mess up a thumb screw. <laughs> like, yeah. if, it, if it threads an M5 and has a knurled knob on it, bet. Like, you're good. That, that's probably fine. Like, that, there are some things that don't necessarily require that validation. Once we get them in, we're still going to check them. But it's a pretty low-risk thing, especially when we, our production quantity was, like, you know, 
four or five hundred bucks or something. Yeah, it was nothing. It was crazy. It was it just didn't it wasn't worth spending the time getting the sample. It's gonna be fine. Even if they weren't, it's not the end of the world for money. And we could be like, hey, this doesn't thread M5. What the heck, guys? So, you know, it, it depends a lot on whether or not you get the samples. Yeah, and it's even about trust to some capacity right. too. And whether your component is off the shelf or made to spec, mm-hmm. if we're buying GT2 idler pulleys from a new vendor who I've never heard of before, might be a good to get a sample. But if we're buying black ones instead of silver ones <laughs> from a trusted vendor, yeah. then it's like, okay. Yeah, a lot lower chance that something's going to be wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear that. And, and, Sometimes when when we get samples, the point of it is really to like to validate. Like, is it going to work? Um, is it going to be actually what we need? So typically, once we get those samples in, we'll do some kind of testing to validate. Okay, this actually does what we expect it to do. It seems fine. And again, that also varies greatly on the thing. Like, I think when we got in the drive motors for feeders, we did a lot of validation <laughs> testing on those because that's like the beating heart of the feeder is that motor that matters so much for it. But other things like screws. Yep, looks like a screw. It threads. It's fine. Like there, you don't need to do a crazy process for that. Yeah, and it's just for the the drive motor is a great example because for Opula it was fairly expensive. Like we were planning a production run of a thousand feeders for the initial like production batch, and yeah. to have a thousand drive motors that were wrong, or <laughs> even more scary, a thousand drive motors that re- required a soldering rework. Yeah, like. <laughs> Nothing would be worse than us having to rework a thousand motors we got in. Oh, right? yeah. Like, it's, it's terrifying. Just, it would nuke us. <laughs> yeah, it would nuke <laughs> us. Yeah, we just needed to be a tool. The, you know, the CMs and the vendors are meant to be just solving a problem for us. So we're outsourcing it. For and, sure. And that's also a lot of like, before we even start sourcing, this is all like before we even try and really find a vendor depending, uh, like, what are we even getting? Um, and sometimes it, the scope will matter quite a bit of like, what are we actually, what do we want them to do? So uh, the example that I think we both think about the most often is the pumps. Uh, do we have the CM solder the cable harness onto the pump? Like, we can do that. But if we could have the vendor kind of act like a CM a little bit, it's not bad. Yeah, every vendor can offer some level of customization. Yeah. Every vendor can offer some level of specialization for your product. Yeah. Um, as an example where we tried to get the wire vendor for Opulo sending the cable for the pumps to the pump vendor and getting them to attach it. Right. Yeah. The, but in this case, the contract manufacturer that made the wires didn't have a good relation with the pump vendor. The, the pump vendor truly did not care about the scale <laughs> at which we were ordering it, which is another big thing here that yeah. we touched on more later. But yeah. Yeah. when, let's say you're ordering 500 pumps from the pump guy who works usually with, I don't know, medical device companies, they in the tens of thousands of units, like you're yeah. not going to get much barking up that tree. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it does, it does really depend how much. And when, when we say CM, we mean contract manufacturer, which is like someone it's, it's a, a plate, a factory effectively, like a place that you hire to make your thing. And in many ways we're our own CM, but vendors can kind of act like CMs a little bit, like ask people to, there's a, a buddy I, I met when we lived in Somerville who he, he emailed PCB way because uh, normally PCBWay just has like a portal for like upload your boards and we make them. But he emailed them and was like, hey, could you make a serialized QR code sticker and put it in this spot? And they're like, yeah, sure. And they just were down the clown like that. And they just, they figured out the sourcing for it. They found out how to get the stickers and figured out the process. They just did all of that automatically. It was really cool. Like so many of the time, if you just ask, so much of the time, I should say, like vendors are down to facilitate stuff, you know? Yeah, they they take any opportunity 
that they can reasonably grant to turn labor into profit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a great example was our nozzle vendor, who just usually sells components off the shelf in little Ziploc bags. Mm-hmm. They were totally willing to put each of the six nozzles in tiny little bags with the labeled nozzle size yeah. like for final customer delivery. They, they even packaged the grease packet in there with it. They, right, yeah. They were super willing to help us in making it easier for us. Sure. Um, they saved us like two minutes per nozzle kit here, and that's just invaluable when we're such a small team. Yeah. Like what we can do outside here at our vendor's facility instead is just so awesome. And even if it adds a little bit of cost to the process per unit, Oh, just not even having to think about that process and having space for doing that thing and buying the bags and reordering the bags and just outsourcing stuff like that. Um, Joel, uh, one of our investors, yeah, he, he says a lot like, we should be only working on things that we're uniquely good at. I love that. I think about it all the, all the darn time. <laughs> uh, and we're not uniquely good at bagging things. We're, we're good at it. We're not uniquely good at it. So if we can have someone else do that for us, we should be focusing on the stuff that, only, that we provide value, you know? So yeah, figuring out exactly what is it that you're getting from the CM is important too. And negotiating with them a little bit of like, hey, maybe could you do this other little thing, please? And then maybe they will do it for a little markup. And it's, it's such a good thing to know to do that. Anything else about uh, getting the parts and like actually like, or excuse me, before getting them, like engineering validation, finding out like getting samples if we can, uh, Amazon for testing for stuff that we know that we could definitely find a vendor for down the road, but like we don't really have to worry about validation too much. It'd be great to know from the people listening to this, what do they want to see us elaborate on? Because they're, as I've said before, like we can go on for hours about each of these points. True. Yeah. Um, So all of these things are, we're kind of doing like a pretty overarching thing here. Uh, So if there's little specifics that, that we didn't get into detail on, let us know and we'll do a whole, a whole darn episode about it. It's also important to talk about the engineering validation of like, what do we do when we got a sample in? Maybe we can use the staging plate as an example. You even did a whole video about that one. Right, yeah. That was an interesting one. Yeah, because we got we got a uh, the staging plate. It was made in 3mm steel, laser-cut steel, powder-coated. And we were really worried about the Z height, like kind of the, the profile of the staging plate across the machine, uh, which ended up really not mattering that much at all because the head is compliant. So placing, you just drive it you know, 200 microns deeper, and it's, it's fine. It's actually great. Uh, but we were worried about that. So we did a whole validation thing of like profiling the surface of the staging plate. And is it going to bend too much and all that stuff? And so, yeah, we went through that whole process. Yeah. And in a part of that, we developed an engineering drawing. And that was almost critical in telling the vendor, what is our threshold of acceptance here? Like, yeah. What is okay? What is it? And how to inspect for these defects at, with an acceptance rate. Right. So if you truly have a very important part that's critical to the quality of your good. Mm-hmm important to make that drawing and totally specify verbatim exactly what you care about exactly how you'd measure it yep exactly how defective it's allowed to be right and just making sure the vendor has that when it's needed critical yep and and that's kind of the whole ethos behind gd&t and for those that don't know gd&t is geometric dimensioning intolerance oh you're a gem yeah. okay <laughs> so it's like it, correct me if i'm wrong because you have much better understanding than i do but uh, gd&t is like dimensioning only very specific things on a part that you actually care about because if you say oh i need this part this 3d model here here vendor here's this part i need it to be accurate plus or minus 100 microns on all surfaces that's a really expensive part and you almost definitely don't need that level of precision everywhere so gdnt is a way to say i only need precision right here and only in this way 
Yeah, exactly. Okay. I think of it as a language and specifying exactly what you need and helping you pay avoid paying for quality you don't need. Yeah. So like that's a lot of this for the parts that we care a lot about, like the staging plate, the drive motors for feeders, all that stuff. We need them to be really specific in a couple ways. So identifying those and having knowing those specs up front for the vendor is super, super good to know before you even start reaching out to people. So, you know, ex- you're asking them for exactly what you want. Yeah. And then the the opposite, too, is just knowing what's going to be fine. Yeah. Like the M3 by 16 bolts are going to show up as M3 by 16 bolts. And if they don't, you can get it refunded. Right. Like, don't don't exert yourself a, with every single component in your supply chain. <laughs> yeah. Like you can reject a batch and return it. Yeah. Give yourself time to do that, too, if you're worried about it, though. Sure. Yeah. Choose your battles is a good conclusion for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, don't do it with M3 by 14 <laughs> flathead screws. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay, so you know what you need. You know, you have your specs. You have some samples. How do you find a person that sells you a lot of them? Like this, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, so that's a whole chicken. It's a whole chicken. <laughs> so finding components um, and finding your vendors, there's multiple ways to go about it. Mm-hmm. You. A couple things to break down here. You need to think about what scale are you ordering it at? Where do you want it made, like country-wise? And how soon do you need it? Yeah. So if I need 10 M5 by 30 bolts, I'm going to go to McMaster Car if I'm in the U.S. I'm going to go to Misumi if I'm in Europe. Yeah. Maybe my local hardware store. Right. If we're talking about 5,000 nuts and bolts, okay, then we can start reaching out to the factories that actually make it and sell it to these hardware stores. Right. Um, at that point, we really cross into like the mid-scale realm. Yeah. Um, and for that, if we're going abroad, particularly Asia, we can be using Alibaba, AliExpress. Mm. Um, even eBay sometimes will be selling things from these uh, abroad companies in large volumes with bulk pricing. Sure. You might even find that in Amazon. Right. Sometimes an Alibaba vendor cross-lists on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so I'd say avoid having a bias in where you buy something, honestly. Mm. But typically Alibaba is the most formal way of going about purchasing something. So at what, what is Alibaba? So that's a great question. <laughs> Alibaba is an online marketplace for factories and resellers and vendors. Mm. For it's, it's a market, you name it, for just transacting goods from purchasing or selling. So it's where motor vendors are selling motors. It's where CMs are advertising contract manufacturing services. It's just a global marketplace for developing products from the manufacturing and sourcing side, really. Sure. Yeah. And it's also, it's not like Amazon in that you go to a product page on Amazon. And it's like, cool. If I send them $16, they send me this object. It's like, yeah, that might be kind of what they have on there. But really, it's just a way to open up communication with a place where they'll tell you, yeah, we'll build what you want. What do you want? You know, like sometimes you can buy it like off the shelf. And I think that's more AliExpress where like those vendors are still trying to sell stuff in like an Amazon style way where it's like off the shelf. You don't need to talk to them. But Ali, Alibaba is more of like, here, look, look at what we can do. Do you want to talk? Like we'll customize stuff for you at certain quantities and stuff like that. Yeah, I've never bought something from Alibaba without probably exchanging 20 messages back and forth. Yeah. AliExpress. You can choose to message someone if you care to. Right. Um, and sometimes that's fine. Yeah. Like there's plenty of things we buy in volume for the Lumen PMP without talking to someone. Right. Yeah. From Asia. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's also pretty important to mention talking with them through WeChat is 
huge and how big WeChat specifically is for doing this sourcing. It's especially important when purchasing in these lower volumes in the mid-skill range that you develop a relationship with these people and you make it easy for them to work with you. So I tell people to work their hours, use their communication tools, be on WeChat, be accessible. Mm. Um, offer to translate your messages to Chinese if they prefer it. Yep. Um, tell them it's okay to speak to you in Chinese if they have to. Yep. You can translate it pretty well. Yeah. Stuff like that. But yeah. use, make it easy for them, right. basically. And so what is WeChat for those that don't know? Yeah, WeChat's basically WeChat, WhatsApp. They're all similar types of just like online text programs. Um, right. WeChat in China is, it's kind of Facebook yeah. to them. It's, it's a messenger app. It's a digital wallet. It's a social media feed. Yeah. It's a Twitter it's yeah. everything. Mm. But uh, foreigners are able to use WeChat for texting these vendors. Sometimes it can be hard to get an account. Yeah. But Don't you need to like be referred by somebody? Like, I think I got my referral link from someone at Formlabs that had a, a few to hand out or something. Yeah, no, it, that can happen. Yeah. Um, so depending on what country you're in, it might be hard to get an account. Yeah. Um, sometimes your vendor, though, can send you an invite code. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I didn't, yeah, I, that's, I didn't know that. That's handy. Cool. So if you'd like to get on WeChat and you're working with abroad vendors, you can probably have them help you orchestrate that. That's cool. I didn't realize that makes sense. It's in their best interest too. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, and that includes like I remember, especially in the early days, you were you would take the night shift, and like you'd be like, uh, it would be like I don't know, six p.m. and you'd wake up, and we'd debrief for two hours, and then I'd go to sleep. Well, I would go to bed at eight p.m., but you know, I'd go to sleep, <laughs> and then you'd be up all night talking with vendors because if you if they're awake during the night and you're awake during the day, you get one message per day. And that's so frustrating. That means you said 20 messages back and forth. That's 20 days versus yeah. one day of just banging it out, like texting exactly. as if you're just on, you know, like, you know, chatting in DMs in live real time. That's great. For sure. Yeah. So, And if you don't want to go that way, these vendors are pretty responsive between late evening and early morning in like Asian work cultures especially in like Chinese manufacturing in particular, it's not uncommon for me to hear from vendors as late as 10 p.m. their time. Yeah. And like, I always discourage them from getting back to me. I say I can wait, but uh, the reality is that these online sales reps are present and you don't have to be up all night. Yeah. Um, they will work around your schedule, but... Uh, it's a homey thing to do. Yeah, to... <laughs> it's a homey thing and yeah. they'll be nicer. They'll be more negotiable. Yeah, you can... F oh, yeah. There was one vendor that thought you were really cute and kept flirting with you. Yeah. I forgot about that. Okay, so let's say you have a widget and you have a list of 10 companies from the first couple pages of Alibaba mm -hmm. that you would like to shop it around with. Uh, I honestly just start messaging people and I gauge who is responsive, who speaks the same language as me well, mm -hmm. who seems easy to work with. I'll be talking to a couple different vendors at once and just let it thin out. Just going off of what vendors here seem like the easiest people to work with. Who do I have the best shot at having a good relationship with? Right. Which of these companies would care the most about our business? Yeah. And from there, running with three, four, five people, three, four, five companies and getting prices. And I'll make a Google sheet where I just plot quantity against company, lead time and price. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just weigh it all. Yeah. Uh, and I decide what's the most important to me is. A vendor is most communicative, the most important, the best price, the best lead time. And it's always a, you're always going to compromise something here. Yeah. Like for our vacuum sensors, um, Jack and I, the sales app, we, we say hardly a word to each other, but it's <laughs> fine. It's exactly. You, <laughs> there isn't too much to negotiate or talk about. It's like, 
here's the part, here's the price, do you want more? And you say, yes, please. And then you buy them and then they come in the mail and it's, it's fine. You yeah. don't need to talk more about it. But for other things where it needs like the, the drive motors for feeders is a great example to keep coming back to. There's some stuff going on in there. We needed communication with them about exactly what it is that we want. Um, so that, that requires a different relationship. The other important thing here to having a good relationship is just being transparent in how many of an item you plan to order. Mm. Don't lie to these vendors. Don't tell them too little. Don't tell them too many. Just be realistic with them. Yeah. Um, I've seen many companies sweet talk vendors into saying we'll buy 200,000 of a thing and only end up buying like 5K of a thing. And yeah. Don't do that to them because yeah. they'll change your price on you real quick and it just, <laughs> or they'll ghost you. And manufacturing here is about building relationships and managing it and finding companies that are willing to work with you right. and become dependable to you. And if you jerk these companies around, it's just not going to be enjoyable for anyone. So it's, it's annoying for them because they think they're going to get a lot of sales and then they don't if we promise them, overpromise how, what our quantity is going to be. And then if it's the other way around, um, or it's also bad for us, I mean to say, because they aren't nearly as responsive to us because we're chump change to them. Like finding a, a CM or a vendor that is okay and happy to operate on the scale that you operate on. And our whole thing is mid-scale manufacturing. We're not Apple. We're not making, you know, millions upon millions of units a year. You have to negotiate with some of these folks about how many you, you're, you got to make sure they're down. They're, they're down for the quantities that you have available for them. Yeah. And I'll say this too. When you find a manufacturing partner that really resonates with you, mm. really resonates with your order volume, yeah. and is easy to work with, mm. latch on to them and really lean on your vendors. I love asking more of our vendors, especially once we've built up a rapport, we've built up trust, right. and we know that they can execute well. Right. And, and even if it's just a matter of like, like if you have, if you have 50 vendors and you buy, let's say you're only buying 1,000 quantity for each, from each one. That's fine, but then you have 50 groups of people that all are like, yeah, I'm only making a thousand purchase once a year, let's say. But if you have five vendors and you take all those thousand units and those vendors are actually doing kind of some of the sourcing for you of like sending you a box full of all the stuff they do, but then they also go and collect the thousand. It, they make more money on that one relationship. They're limiting the number of relationships that they have. And you've done this a bunch with certain vendors oh, yeah. of ours. You're like, oh, cool. They're down to clown. Hey, could you also get this part? And that happens after you start to build a network and relationships. You can ask them, hey, will you do this too? And sometimes they can't, but sometimes they can. And then it saves us time negotiating with other vendors. And it's a little more risky because it's single sourcing where some stuff comes instead of double sourcing it, uh, having multiple places you can get the same thing. Yeah. But yeah. And a, there's a secret bonus here Matt, that I'll, mm. I'll share. <laughs> um, the huge upside of all of this too, if you have a trusted vendor, reach out and find something you are otherwise buying elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Let's say we're talking about Chinese companies. Your vendor might be reaching out to the Chinese supplier of a part, speaking to them in their own tongue, talking about FOB prices where it's right. factory pickup. Yeah. They're not adding a surcharge for dealing with a Western company, thinking about exchange rates. They're just transaction between local company A and B. And it's so much easier for, for that to happen than for a vendor to think about, oh, just what, what, how much extra do I want to charge because it's annoying to ship something abroad? Right. I, I didn't even think about that. But like they're almost acting as like a little sourcing agency overseas exactly. in order to get all that stuff together. And it greases the wheels so much for them being able to get stuff from other factories. Because like you said, same tongue. They could walk down the street if it's all in Shenzhen, yeah. depending on where, where they're based. A lot of them are in Shenzhen. Uh, really easy to go get it. 
toss it in the box and then one shipping label <laughs> you know yeah so that's really handy like just as an example we we sent pneumatic couplers to our nuts and bolt vendor because low risk thing right they're sending us a sample and then we just from now on we turn two vendors into one and it makes less work for opula right yeah yeah that's true especially when they're well correct me if i'm wrong about this it, I would imagine it would be easier when one vendor is supplying quantities of things that are depleted at the same rate. Because like, if we have a vendor for feeder stuff and we sell a different amount of feeders than we do lumens, but one vendor sells gives us the same stuff or gives us parts for feeders and the lumen, we might need to reorder on feeders, but not on the lumen. And, like, you know, and then you're splitting it up. But if you do it based on how products are consumed, it might be easier. Is that fair to say or not so much? It's gotten to the point for us that with many of our vendors, there's just a quarterly buy. Yeah. Or even more frequent sometimes. So yeah. Sometimes there's overlap if the vendor happens to supply for multiple product lines. Right. Sometimes it's out of sync. Yeah. And sometimes I'm reactionary instead of proactive because it was too much to juggle. Right. And that's not always the case, but yeah. it, it can happen. And when there's awesome synergy, it's great. Like filament. Right. We consume black filament no matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we <laughs> always will. black filament. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's, We've recently made an effort to make the the fasteners and the lumen and the feeder very similar to each other, and it's been great. Yeah. That synergy is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's standardizing things across product lines. For sure. I can see that totally helping. And it, it's more about what is the company's consumption rate as opposed to what is a certain product's consumption rate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you've found a company you like working with, mm. you've gotten samples from them, and you need to negotiate the pricing, right? Like, yeah. What does that look like at volume? Yeah. That's that's a tricky one because there's price breaks. I think that's an important thing to touch on too first. Oh, like, for sure. What is a price break? Okay, so once we have samples in hand we like and we have the vendor we want to continue working with, yeah. then it starts to begin discussing bulk pricing for larger order quantities. And the name of the game there is price breaks. Yeah. So it might be quantity five pricing is the sample price. It's $50 a unit for this power supply. Yeah. Maybe then the quantity 100 price for a power supply is $50. And then at quantity 10,000, it's 1250 Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's then on us to figure out, what do you want? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I sure would love to have Opulo buy 10,000 power supplies at 1250 But the reality might be that you can't afford that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like th- there are things that it makes sense. Like, there's, there's this thing I think about all the time. I can, this is super insane to do this, but bear with me here on this insane analogy. I could calculate how much toilet paper I will need to use for the rest of my life. I could find that number, right? And it always makes sense to buy in bulk. So why wouldn't I calculate how much toilet paper I need for the rest of my life and tomorrow go and buy all of that in quantity? I would get the cheapest price per square of toilet paper. (laughs) I mean, that's if you want to save money on toilet paper, that's great. But I might be dropping like seven grand on toilet paper. It might be an exaggeration, but you see my point. Like, it it might make sense to buy a lot to get the price break to make it cheaper per unit, but that requires capital. And depending on how much money you want to tie up in inventory, it's not very lean to buy a whole bunch of stock that you're going to have for the whole rest of the year. You know, if you have a lot of cash and you don't mind cash being tied up in that not the end of the world but that's a really tough knob to turn of like i think we find ourselves very often oh man we'd love to hit the thousand quantity price break but it's so much more money to do it but per unit we save so much money and i think that's that's such a large percentage of our conversations about sourcing is do we want to invest an extra six grand in quantity like i I think we say to ourselves a lot well we know we're going to sell that amount eventually 
Yeah. It won't. Yeah, that cash is tied up, but like, it's not like we're hurting for that cash. It probably makes sense to do it. It's just kind of a bummer to tie cash up in it. But that price break, can you hit a certain price break is such a consideration that we talk about. Yeah. So I wanted to think about a little bit more of the considerations here Um, because it's an impossible thing to, there's no solved answer here. Right. You can't buy an infinite amount to make the price infinitely low. Yeah. But like, <laughs> so we can think about like what's important to prioritize here. Yeah. Is it getting something to market quickly? Is it selling an initial amount to something to then go to pre-order? So right. for me, I think about like, let's say we're, let's say we're talking about the, the Lumen PMP V2 kit, okay. the, the DIY kit. Sure. Our initial goal was to get 100 kits ready as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, and then see what how the market responded to its release. Sure. Um, so in that situation, we were trying to source like 100 machines worth of stuff. Yeah. And we were heavily considering like the shipping cost of it all. Yeah. Um, we were trying to launch a product as soon as possible. Yeah. So we had no choice really but to do air freight. Yeah. With air freight too, you, you didn't want to buy too many. Otherwise, that box is really expensive. Yeah. Um, the consideration there is if we're buying more than an, a, a certain amount, we should switch to sea freight. But right. we wanted the product here quick. Yeah. So getting stuff here fast and in an initial quantity was at odds with getting stuff in bulk cheaply with cheaper shipping. Right. So you, we had to set what we wanted out first. Right. Um, That's a good point. And I think this could be event. I think we could probably do a whole episode about this. I, I think we should still talk about it now. But like the for the initial release, use an expensive, fast vendor. And then for the long-term stuff, like worry about costing down later. Worry about switching to sea shipping later. If you're just trying to get a thing out, get adoption, help with cash flow, just getting a thing out the door is huge and having it be fast and being able to react. But after we sold those, you know, those first, <laughs> we were prepping for a hundred, having no idea what would happen. We sold out in 50 minutes and suddenly <laughs> now we have a bunch more orders we have to do. Then we had a much larger order straight after that for all the other units and then we, we, I think ultimately what we did is we did one more air shipment to catch up with all the orders that we had. And then we did another sea ship at the same time with all the money that we made from those initial sales to kind of like, okay, we need a little stopgap air shipment, a little bit more expensive, won't make as much money per machine. But then the sea shipping from there on out was now we're starting to see those cost savings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think my exact advice here is to buy an initial amount that makes sense for an air freight shipment yeah. if you're using large physical products. Yeah. And then order enough to give you time to switch to sea shipments in your subsequent reorder. Right. Especially after you have cash coming in from that first order wave. Cool. Now you have some money that you can spend on another air shipment and a sea shipment, and then you end up saving money in the long term. Yeah, ideally that. And if you've already begun selling something, you can look at what's the consumption rate for this component in the last three, four months. Right. And then I usually will just buy what our consumption rate was and round it up to the nearest 10 or something sure. like that. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. You'll, we'll give you the considerations here, but it really ultimately comes down to how much money you have to spend, how much you want something here ASAP, and yeah. like what's your budget for the finished goods. Right. And, and also, how much, how much do you expect to sell? Because when, when we were first prepping for our first unit, we didn't know if we would sell 10 or 1,000. Like, we literally had no idea. And we also didn't have a ton of cash. Uh, we had, uh, I think, one safe note at that point. Yeah, there was 100K in the bank, and some of it was tied up in equipment anyway. Yeah, I think we only had, like, 65, 70K at that point. And then we spent, like, 40K 
or something crazy. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, it was, it like was thir- a lot. It was thirty two k on the material, and then like a hundred. No, it was like thirty two k on the material, and then ten k in air freight, and yeah. then an unknown amount to be billed for import duties. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we we were we didn't have that much. We could not afford a price break more than a hundred. So all we had was a hundred. So we just put all of <laughs> almost all the rest of the money we had left into that first order quantity buy the 100 quantity buy and then after we started selling it's like okay (laughs) now we have some to breathe you know it's all about the cash flow really and then also we knew at what rate we were selling them after we had the store open it becomes a very not easy but a lot more straightforward to be like okay at this rate if we're selling them this amount per day this much money per day that we make on machine sales we know how many we need to buy in order to keep up and that that ended up being really helpful so after you actually start selling them it helps a lot with knowing how many you need to buy. <laughs> and it, it really does take like a month of selling something to use it for any useful forecast. Like right. referencing how many uh, feeders worth of material to buy with the first three days of sales was useless. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not accurate. <laughs> you need to have you need to hit steady state. Yeah. And I think now we have a pretty good understanding. But like even for the first couple of weeks, it takes so much time to see. And then and then you have that huge initial wave. Then you have a lull from all the people who wanted to get them now have gotten them oh, yeah. and then you you come back up to a steady state so like you kind of have to wait a number of weeks before you can start to get that amount but before you actually start selling them it's a guess <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of just a guess yeah and this yeah. goes back to working with the vendors that's why it's important to set those ex- expectations out because you don't necessarily know what's going to happen i prime every vendor to expect like things might pop off and to make sure they understand that that make sure that they're ready for it right i remember you drafting emails to vendors being like hey we expect we'll probably sell at least x amount this year and it was like a conservative but fair estimate and then saying realistically we could see upwards of x amount or like i remember you kind of using that language to kind of give them a a lay of the land of you'll see at least this from us you might see way more and that was that seemed like it worked really well yeah like if we're buying packaging from someone like they might have no problem supplying 100 lumen boxes but if i learn that they can't supply 10,000 lumen boxes that's a fake number yeah in a year then we have no business working with them if we want partners that grow with us right yeah yeah and sometimes it's hard to like thread the needle on someone that's small enough that will work with us but also big enough that they can expand to that number like at some point you have to kind of accept that you're going to outgrow some vendors but but that's more for like more bespoke stuff like in china like a lot of our vendors could ship us 10,000 units or something without batting an eye you know, like it would be pretty easy. Some, not so much, but others. Am I right, wrong in that? Does yeah. that seem fair? Probably half of our vendors tease us for making small orders. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> so it all depends. Yeah. It's impossible to give advice that's universally applicable besides to right. be remain cash conscious. Yeah. Um, the finite resource, use it carefully. Yeah. Don't exhaust relations with these people and yeah. just keep sailing the course that you need to be on. Yeah. Yeah. We're ultimately, we're working with them. They're, they're a partner. You know, and if they're frustrating to talk to or not receptive and, you know, don't take quality issues seriously or continue to make the same mistake over and over, then it, it's a th- that matters. <laughs> that matters a lot for it. And then and then there's the whole thing of paying them. Oh, yeah. So this is a whole can of worms in and of itself. We should do a whole episode about this later, too. But what is it? So you, you go with a vendor, you say, hey, we want this part. We want a thousand of them. We want to ship them air. We want them within four weeks. Let's do it. And they're like, great, here's a quote. 
and then you have to send them money. So what does that look like? Because that's something you've traditionally handled like the whole time we've been in business. Yeah, so it'll happen a wide range of different ways. If it's your first time reaching out to a vendor, expect to pay for these goods fully before you see them. If it's the first time you're yeah. working with a vendor? Okay, I don't so, know. If you are credible, if you've been in business and you pass a credit check well, yeah. you're reputable, you have a good online presence, vendors might be a little bit more flexible here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm touching on is terms, basically. So okay. what type of terms do you want to negotiate on? Do you want to be cash in advance, 100% full deposit? Do you want to be 50-50? That's to say 50% cash up front, mm-hmm. 50% delivered upon goods being shipped, mm-hmm. 50% maybe is paid upon goods being received, yeah, and then all the way out to net 30. So you pay for these goods within 30 days of receiving them. Of receipt, not even order place, but from when they arrive. Exactly. Yeah. So what will happen when purchasing something can vary widely, and it will always be a little bit different. Yeah. We have one vendor that bills us for our PCBs monthly. It's like a subscription cost. <laughs> <laughs> it's Spotify, but for circuit yeah. boards. So every month we just close out the balance due for PCBs. Right. But it took a bunch of purchases to get there. Oh, so that, that's a thing that comes from being built on trust. Yeah. I didn't know we pay them that way. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that comes from being built on trust. It's not based on the order. Like, oh, you bought this. Here you go. It's just there's an expectation of monthly order quantities that need to come through. And they know we're good for it. They know we're going to keep buying them. It, we just pay whatever we owe for that. Yeah. Month. And like for that, that vendor, they're really easy. They, they didn't even care that I mixed up payments and we were late two mm-hmm. months later. They just, they trust us. Yeah. When you have trusted vendors, it gets really easy. Yeah. But uh, at the beginning, it can be a little bit adversarial. Like, do you really want to spend $10,000 on a extrusion vendor before you've seen anything from them? Right. And that's, that goes back to why the samples are so important. Yeah. 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 So. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, you have to know that they're good before you, you're going <laughs> to invest all the money and time in building the relationship. And yeah. Yeah. So to bring it back. Let's say you're buying something from someone for the first time. You're probably going to be paying for that sample via Alibaba, credit card deposit, and then you want to go buy $5,000 of this component from them. Expect to pay 50-50 at best, where 50% up front, 50% upon ready to ship. And usually they'll send a picture of like, here's your stuff. It's in a box. We're about to ship it. Please pay the other 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll always offer that. You can sometimes request a little bit more, like show me a picture of this Rubag on package. Show show me a picture of this PCB with the silkscreen done perfectly. Whatever. Yeah. You can kind of gate that second payment behind a a gut check. Yeah. But ultimately, you're going to be paying fully for your goods sometimes before you've held it. And this isn't, we're not talking about samples. We're talking about production quantity yeah, here. Okay. For yep. sure. Yeah. I, we put a lot of money into I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but we bought a whole bunch of stuff. We couldn't get samples because of timing. And we're like, okay, we just have to like buy a production quantity. It was like many thousands of dollars when that was like a real spooky thing to just drop. <laughs> and yeah, it, it mattered. But we got pictures. I don't remember what it was. It was a V2 thing, but there was something we did. I think it was with. tens of thousands of dollars in stepper motors. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember that. And now. we just had to trust that a stepper motor is a stepper motor and that the sample is going to be synonymous with production. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, we were just sending 15 grand into the ether and hoping that they come back like th- they match the samples, you yeah. know, but like we sent all that money and then they shipped it and we had not seen them. Right. But that's part of it. You know, that's the trust in building the relationship. For sure. Yeah. So on that note, like once more money gets involved, like serious north of $2,000 amounts become involved, then... It's uh, a little bit more of a formal process. Probably you're making a purchase order in response to an invoice, mm-hmm. which is just a, a contract to pay for an amount of goods delivered by an amount of time. Right. Keyword there. 
defining the amount of time for delivery. Yep. And it's probably going to be something you pay via wire. Because if you're paying for a $4,000 invoice with a credit card, you're probably paying an extra, I don't know, 70 bucks. And that can add up across yeah. a large supply chain. Right. Sometimes, though, you might not have time to kick off a wire transfer and you just need to pay it and go back to bed because it's late. And that invoice <laughs> was sent at 11. <laughs> <laughs> and you need that part in the in the mail in four weeks from today. Yeah. You just got to make it happen. Uh, it always it's always arranged. Yeah. But it is nice. Like, I think I think if you're diving into this kind of thing, it's good to have a credit card and build credit early and put stuff on a credit card. Of course, stuff that you can still know that you'll be able to afford. Or off debit, just sending the money through through a debit card. And then figuring out how that you can wire ACH, which is like domestic in the US, and international, which is SWIFT. So having a system, talking to your bank about how do I send ACH or SWIFT wires, and being able to do that is so, like you do that all the time oh, yeah. for sending money. And like that really, it does add up eventually. Do you think it's worth doing early on, like in the very beginning of sourcing, having that stuff set up? Or is it like probably not worth the effort? So I think what we did with Opula was great. We we invested in doing things really formally and very properly yeah. early, almost as a dry run for when we knew we'd grow into it right. and fit our shoes better. Sure. So I'd say try making a swift payment if you have time to figure it out and for it to be a little bit slower than using your debit card. Like, right. Just make an exercise out of using all these more traditional processes yeah. and just get in the habit of it. And then eventually it'll be second nature. Right. And, and then that way, when suddenly you're selling you know, thousands of these things, you're like, oh, man, I need to buy so many. You already know how to send it via wire and your credit card fee of like $200 on a huge bill isn't devastating. You already have your system set up when it comes time to scale. Oh, for sure. And yeah, an example that we we paid for the staging plates via Swift just to try it out. Yeah, it wasn't required of us. And we learned that our we had to go to the bank and sign a bunch of stuff and like oh, get yeah. an account number and like get login credits for this whole banking system. That's right. And like had we needed that part in the mail as soon as possible of no time for delay, you would have made our orders late. So trying stuff early is always better. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And like, yeah, you might go a bit slower, but man, you are setting yourself up for success for scaling down the road so much more. And then uh, the other thing about buying that I would love for you to mention in this is the difference between a DDP and like do when are duties paid and like at what point is the responsibility of the vendor versus the buyer stop? So if you could go into that and describe a little bit about that, that's a whole thing you spent. So that would be another great full episode of like duties, you know? Yes. All right. I would love to hop into this. Yeah. <laughs> I need to pull up a reference chart for these because there's like, we're going to have like a couple different acronyms here. Okay. But I can hop onto that. Okay. Yeah. G- give us the high level and then we'll, we'll set up a time to have an, an actual full episode about this because this is so important. It matters so much for getting stuff. And understanding what the responsibility is. I remember you realizing that this was a whole thing and being like, okay, my next two days are nuked, just like learning what all the, the duties management stuff looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So the final detail of working this all out of your vendors of choice is shipping. Yeah. And when we discuss shipping, there's a multitude of different considerations. And it's basically about the inco terms. So that's about whether something is fully on the responsibility of the vendor to get it to you up until your door. Is it fully on you to get the goods from their facility, from their front door and onward? And there's a whole bunch of different agreements you can set in between. Yeah. Well, like of the line being drawn at any other stage in between their front door and our front door. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it gets so nuanced. Yeah. Here. Yeah. If y'all, if you want to hear an episode about all this duty stuff, 
it's a rabbit hole and it's really important and can save you a lot of money when buying this stuff. So let us know if it's something that you want us to do an episode about. Yeah, I'll say this is a domain where lawyers make their lives work out of it. Like yeah. People get master's degrees in this topic. Yeah. But for the general listener, the mm-hmm. most important thing to know is that there's DDP and DAP, sometimes called DDU. That's delivery duties paid. And then the other one is delivered at place, also known as delivery duties unpaid. Okay. And then the last one that I should really touch on is FOB, free on board. Okay, so what are those three? What what are the duties or the yeah, yeah the requirements? So the the most okay, so the FOB one is the most simple. Okay, the goods are at your vendor's front door, and the rest of the responsibility is on you. <laughs> <laughs> that can obviously be very difficult yeah. if you are in the U.S. or you're in Germany. And your manufacturing partner is in Shenzhen, China. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes that's fine. Yeah. Sometimes that makes sense. Yep. Sometimes you have someone that works for you that lives in Shenzhen that can go pick it up and put it in a box and ship it to your facility in Germany or the US or Italy or wherever else. There's even shipping carriers that you can contract in China whose job will be to pick up all of these FOB shipments and kit them together. But then it's fully on you to get all of this stateside yeah. or to your country where yeah. you are uh, where you run your business. Sure. So that one is typically associated with like the cheapest price because they don't have to think about packaging. Yeah. They don't have to think about customs and managing that. It can, it can burn a lot of time to try to get a shipment across an ocean. Right. The next level up, and there, I'm skipping past many levels here. Sure, sure. I can mostly speak towards what we've dealt with yeah. is DDU. Mm-hmm. I think that phrase is now obsolete in favor of DAP. Okay. So delivered at place. Okay. Delivered at place is it's the vendor's responsibility to get the package shipped into the customs agent and to your door, but you are responsible for the import bill. For the duties. Yeah, the yes. duties and surcharges that shipment made at your port of origin. Right. And but not paying for the shipping cost. They the vendor still pays the cost to ship it. Like they pay DHL to bring a box to you. But the duties, that's your responsibility yeah. to pay to DHL. Exactly. The okay. duties will come billed to you. Yeah. And that isn't to say that the vendor ate the cost of shipping. Right. It's just billed on their shipping account. Sure. Yeah. And that's been really important to us. Yeah. Um, especially getting started when we had no clout to get good shipping terms from companies. Right, because if you get a, a shipping number, if you have an account with like UPS or DHL or something, they will give you better rates based on how much you ship. So if you're just starting out, you have trash rates because you, you're you a baby. You haven't yeah. shipped that much it's stuff. It's so piddly. It's so piddly. So if you can lean on your vendor's really good rates because they're shipping all kinds of stuff, you should do it because you're still going to be paying for it one way or another. Might as well just have it go through their thing until you're at a quantity where it makes sense to have your own account. Exactly. And for the the import duties, there's no debate or discussion or negotiation there. They are what they are. So it doesn't even matter how they come about. Yeah. The next version is DDP, which is delivery duties paid, which means the shipping is covered, uh, billed to the vendor. The import duties go to the vendor as well. Mm -hmm. And that can be a lot simpler. That, That means that they're... That can be a lot simpler. There are little to few surprises that you may expect when yeah. you get something to your door. Right. When I have a DDP motor in hand, I know there's no further emails from DHL about <laughs> paying extra fees for it. Sure. It solely goes back to the vendor. Right. So what do we normally do and what did we start with? Like what's, I'd imagine DDP is nice for no surprise bills. But also, I feel like that might be something vendors reserve for like high quality, high quantity stuff where it's like a really known entity of how much duties are going to cost. 
yeah. uh, when they get the bill. So w- what do we usually do? What, what's a good way to start out? And what, what should you ask from the vendor? Right. It's a great question. For us, it, it can really depend. We have one vendor where we get our aluminum from, we get our, some motors from, we mm-hmm. get some GT2 belts and pulleys from, and they're awesome to work with. And they, they make our job really easy and they send everything DDP. So, and it's even to the point where the unit cost of the item is inclusive of shipping and the duties that they may incur in getting it to us. That's great. For like a high-risk item that can be subject to countervailing duties, anti-dumping fees, it's been really handy to make those DDP yeah. just to minimize our exposure to risk and understand what we're getting. Yep. And also a lot of our vendors, they know the duty system really well because it's literally what they do. They ship that 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 stuff around the world for us we make a pick and place machine and like we should be aware of those things but if we can have them handle it and they understand it better they're the professionals in that we should understand it but we don't know exactly what duties charge this thing with this law you know that's not stuff that we're 100 percent privy to for sure yeah so we're we're more inclined to go ddu if we very if we're very comfortable with what it looks like to import something what right. we can expect the fee to be yep we had an example where we were importing like 10,000 capacitors and they got seized temporarily until we paid for <laughs> aluminum that. anti-dumping rate. Right. And it was like nothing about this part was even aluminum. Yeah. It wasn't even electrolytic capacitors that have aluminum in it. it they yeah. were like ceramic, multi-layer. Yeah, it was pretty funny. So, <laughs> so we definitely love letting the vendor shoulder all of the risk for things that are subject to seizure, or higher right. fees, higher import duty, yeah. stuff like that, just to de-risk it. DDU is fine when it's like sea freight, air freight for low cost things. Mm-hmm. And then FOB, we haven't played with all that much. Yeah, I don't think we've, we, we played with the idea of like hiring one of those companies to kind of like be the courier service that goes around and collects all the stuff, puts it in a box. But like, you know, going back to Joel's advice of like, what are we uniquely good at? Like managing someone doing that, we should be spending our time doing other things that adds more value. Like if they can facilitate that stuff for us, we totally should take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, those types of services are much more handy when we're we're talking about order volumes and shipping containers are like yeah. above 0.5% of a shipping container. <laughs> like True. most of our shipments are LTL, which is less than like container load. Yeah. I think one time I did the volumetric calculations and saw that we could have filled up like 0.3 of a shipping container with some goods. <laughs> and it's, just, it's not even enough to consider the kidding, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. It's not... Those are really high quantities. So for most mid-scale stuff, probably not going to be a consideration. You'll be looking at DAP or DDP, depending on the thing that you're actually shipping. Yeah. Um, and probably also depending on where you live, how much duties are going to be in your country, that kind of stuff. You know, because the laws in your country, what makes more sense, they might not want to do DDP for certain countries that they know have like a devastating or varying wildly customs uh, cost, for duties sure. cost. They may not want to play that game. They may want to put it on you instead. So it, it might depend on where you live. You know, yeah. yeah. We all say this too. We have found a lot of success with getting simple components like pneumatic tubing or screwdrivers for the toolkit bag mm-hmm. on AliExpress with their cheap, cheap, cheap sea freight shipping. Right. That's seemingly DDP. However, they do it. AliExpress vendors are able to get stuff stateside for pennies per kg. It's almost nothing. Yeah. Um, we bought screwdrivers for the toolkit for like. A dime each yeah and the shipping cost was four dollars for like 500 of them that's crazy it just there's some times when you're buying things abroad where 
it doesn't quite make sense yeah. how it's getting here. Yeah. But these companies sometimes have motivating factors outside of our usual reality. Sure. And, like, take advantage of that when you see it. Yeah. If, if the screwdriver is two cents and the shipping is $5 flat for up to a thousand of them, just do it. Recognize it. They're, they're, they found a way to make that work really well for them. And like, it's probably that they're bulking it in with a lot of other stuff. And they have some subsidiary company in the US that they're just shipping it to another part of the company. They don't have to pay duties on it because it's still the same entity. And then they sell it from a US based thing or like who, who knows how they're actually doing it. But they found a way to still make it really beneficial for them to sell stuff at that scale, at that, that cost. Um, so if you can do it, heck yeah. yeah. And it'll sound lazy, but I swear it's calculated. There's some vendors in our supply chain where I don't question how it got here for what it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't think it necessarily sounds lazy. That's just abstracting away the things that we shouldn't be spending that much time on. Like if it's good, if it's a good deal, it makes sense and they're owning it. Heck yeah. Let's let them own it. You know, let's let, we'll work on other stuff. They're working on shipping and, and distribution. It's great. Yeah, and just like we said earlier, like leaning on our vendors to own the quality of something, leaning on our vendors to get smaller components vended through themselves, leaning on our vendors to get a box to us safely yep. in one piece Yep. with what we expect inside it, great. So, and then after you get uh, some quantity in from your first purchase and like it's time to get more of them, do you just hit them back up on WeChat and say, hey, can we do another one of those? Or like, how do prices change? Do, do terms change? How, do, how does like reestablishing contact with a vendor happen like it sounds like you're kind of at this quarterly cadence now do they just expect an email from you or a message on wechat once a quarter or? that's pretty much it okay some vendors i buy like a year and a half worth of supplies with at a time like yeah. limit switches they were 60 cents or something each and so we just buy a million of them yeah we had like a thousand machines worth of limit switches and when i reach back out to that vendor that company might have closed yeah so yeah if you're too infrequent with uh reaching out to these vendors, you might find that your supply chain decays a little bit. Yeah. So every time I reach back out, I'm checking in to make sure they still exist. They still sell the products we need. Right. And obviously, the more frequently you touch base with these companies, the better. Yeah. We have a fastener vendor that we love, and I probably have something in the mail with from them constantly. So right. <laughs> reordering is a very simple thing. Yeah. When it's a higher value order that happens quarterly, you, I usually end up reaching out to the sales rep and sometimes they're assistant, and every now and then the assistant might change. But for the most part, when I reach back out to people, I hear from them. I will ask as a courtesy if the price is the same as last mm-hmm. with the expectation that it's the same. Yeah. And I will fur my brows when it's different, <laughs> and I will make them justify why it's changed. Why it's more, yep. And frankly, when all of this started, we were in the middle of like crazy COVID time. Yeah, so yeah. I try to yank the prices down when I can because right. we had vendors... They gave us quotes when they were operating their production facility at 20% capacity with the sales reps locked up in apartment buildings during peak COVID. Yeah. If that's the most recent price, I'm going to try to bring them down a notch. Right. Yeah. Reordering is a chance to reestablish the price and show, hey, look, we followed up. We're here again. We want to do subsequent business. Um, it's going to be free recurring work. You won't have to work for this commission. You won't have to work for this business. We're just going to come back to you every quarter with an order. Make it worth our while. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's also the point where you hold a lot of power. Yeah. If, for example, we said, hey, we realized that 5% of the last widget you sent us were all defective. Right. That's your opportunity to ask for a 5% discount 
5% of those goods replaced with free stock. Right. Um, you have them over a barrel when you're ready to reorder because they know exactly what it means to, to make more stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's good to good. To, and especially with us, like the prices that we had, we priced in COVID pricing effectively as we've kind of been referring to it in, in our first batch of things. So like if things were just left the same, it's a lot cheaper to make some of those things now. And like, yeah. I think a, a lot of the times they expect that like, okay, that, that's just what it costs and we've priced it in. But like stuff is very much loosened up. When we were first doing stuff, so much sourcing was just impossible. You couldn't, was, get, you couldn't get stuff. And now that it's cheaper, it's like, no, we, we know it's a lot cheaper to do that. And sometimes even you'll, you'll get a quote from another vendor and say, hey, look, so-and-so can do it for this amount. I'd love to do business with you. I'd love to keep doing business with you. Can you match it? You know, can you work that down a little bit? Because that's, I know that it can be cheaper to make that. And that's a great point too. It's important to realize the sales rep is just another human with probably another boss or three. Yep. And if you go to them with a competitor's quote, they're allowed to match it with approval. Yeah. There's certain checkboxes where without checking them off, you can't get a lower price. So when you reach back out and you go, hey, can you match this price? Can Mm. you match this lead time? Can you match this quality metric? Here's a competitor saying they could. Yeah. With the assurance that you'll place this order and it's going to continue being a recurring. Right. You have a lot of leverage. Sure. And and there's the other side of this too, where they have leverage of you don't want to have to reestablish communication with another vendor. Like yeah. once you are set up, if it really is just a matter of same price, cool. I want another thousand. That is so much easier than having to reestablish communication with a whole new vendor. So there's also their leverage there in this negotiation of, I know you don't want to have to go redo all this. It's easy to rebuy from me. And then they can kind of, they have us over a barrel there a little bit. So it's, and that's, that's negotiation is, you know, here's what I have for value. Here's what you have for value. How do we make this mutually beneficial? And, and we want to stick with one person for a long time because it just makes it easier. We're building friendships and relationships with these people. You know, it's, it's important to try and keep it, but you know, you also have to make money on what you do. Yeah. Negotiation is a thing that it's adversarial at worst. It's collaborative at best. Yeah. And it's going to fall somewhere in the middle for you. Yep. Yeah. Um, the best way to hedge against uh, us being over that barrel is to have second sources. And when we're doing the sample right. validation, we validate multiple sources and we yeah. have uh, option A and option B. Mm-hmm. And when we go to reorder, we might consider switching it up. Maybe yep. it just makes explicit sense to ditch your preferred vendor because it's just a different paradigm then. Right. Yeah, maybe their price goes up. Maybe they go out of business. I mean, we've seen all kinds of weird stuff happen with vendors. So to like to have another vendor in the back pocket in case, and that's already validated because the worst thing in the world is, okay, Lucian, we need another thousand of XYZ. And then you go to buy it and you're like, oh, well, they're out of business and we don't have a second (laughs) source. Suddenly we are rush ordering samples from another vendor to get them in, validate them, make sure they're okay. Then we airship a production quantity as fast as humanly possible in to make sure we keep up with our lead times. Like it's a it's a whole dance. So to have that done preemptively yeah. is like, oh great, whatever, I'll just order it from another place. It, you you don't want to get caught with your pants down of having to air freight something without time for a sample. Right. In production quantity. Ex- in production quantity. It's especially terrifying. when it's heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. So Yeah. And then additionally here, these vendors aren't family. You can cut them loose. You can let them go. They're interchangeable in many accounts. Yeah. It's important to realize that you don't need to lose money just to make your friend at this company happy. That's true. I I think it's a balance, right? Because I I agree. If a vendor doesn't make sense, 
if, if someone's really being difficult or it's really bad quality, like we got samples from a thing for some other cost down project we were doing and the samples were terrible. They were like so, so, so bad. And we had to be like, hey, this is really not good. Sorry. I, like we need the, this stuff to be good. We're trying to buy a nice quality product from you. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be okay with, with cutting them loose. But in the other, in the same breath, there's someone that, they're a partner. You know, yeah. it's someone that we're working with to try and be successful and to build a positive relationship and still trying to continue to work with the same group for the consistency and like the trust that's built. It, it's a it's a balance. Yeah. You have to do what's best, but you also want to establish those relationships. There, there was a company we really loved once and we were so patient with them and yeah, we felt like we were helping them excel and like improve each time. And it's just, it got to the point where they weren't improving fast enough for us and they had to be cut loose. Realize that that will happen here. This is manufacturing and sourcing is in some ways a game of chess and like yeah. you're playing to win. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're playing to, you're playing to get your stuff at a good price and keep production smooth. Yeah. And if, if things are not doing that, it's, it's literally the job of someone who's sourcing these things to improve that situation. And yeah. most of the time, if you can do that for through, and I think we always do this. If there's, if there's a problem with production or like the parts we're getting aren't good, we talk with the vendor. You know, we're like, hey, this isn't great. Like you said, can we get the 5% discount because you sent us a bunch of parts that were bad? One out of 20 wasn't working. Like, come on. Um, and then um, also like asking for QC checks that they do before they send it out. And we try and work with them, but we need something that works. We need to yeah. make production smooth. So yeah, yeah so it's a tough balance. Be sentimental and don't be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great rule. Do your best to build really strong relationships with these people. But if they're just continually not working, it's still a business relationship and you need to do what you got to do to make sure you're making a good product and facilitating what works for you. I'd be so excited to see what everyone that's listened to this wants to hear more about. Yes. We've been very broad and wide in our coverage of these topics, but yeah. we could speak essays about any bullet point we had in our outline here. Yeah. Like there's so much to this topic. It, that's what this whole podcast is about, right? We've learned so much in doing just these <laughs> couple last products. There's so much we can share from just doing it. This was like the high level view of sourcing. There's specific stuff that y'all see in this that you're like, man, I would love to know more about this aspect of it. Let us know in the Discord channel, the own podcast Discord channel, what specifically you want us to talk about. We'll do a whole episode about that thing that you ask because there's all of these could be full episodes and I know that it'd be, it'd be fun and, and engaging to talk about them. Yeah, or if you have an anecdote, about some yeah. of these topics here brought up we'd love to hear about it yep many of our guidelines and like suggestions are written in blood <laughs> <laughs> yeah most of the things that we've learned were because we learned the hard way and we got nuked for some reason <laughs> and that's also part of the value of creating this podcast is maybe we could save some people from not getting nuked in I, the way that we did <laughs> yeah i sure wish we could have listened to this earlier <laughs> oh yeah and honestly a shout out we've been inspired by the john saunders and john grimsma yeah. business of machining podcast totally yeah, go listen to that if you aren't. It's amazing how applicable two gentlemen discussing the businesses of running a CNC machine shop is. Yeah, yeah. Even though like the content of what we do of like making pick and place machines and they like kind of do a lot of contract parts in some situations. They also make their own products depending. There's a lot of stuff that you can glean from that. Yeah, they're, that's a great podcast. Yeah. I love hearing them chat. <laughs> it's really good. Cool. All right, folks, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a ton for people finding this. If you have any thoughts about what we talked about here or other episodes that you want us to cover, pop into the Discord. There's a link in the, the show notes, the description of this podcast, where you can go in and tell us what you think. 
Give us your feedback and ask for specific topics. You can find Opula on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, don't forget to check out Opula.io and sign up for our newsletter where we write blog posts and do customer interviews with other folks that are building open hardware. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. See ya. I nearly, I nearly told you I got a bidet for you to buy, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said that. That would have been funny. <laughs>